Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with the University of Illinois Extension here in Macomb, Illinois. And today we have got a great show for you. We are going to be talking about nature journaling with the podcast's very own producer, Wendy Ferguson. Uh, we will have Wendy on here in a second. And you know, folks, I cannot do this by myself. As always, I am joined by local foods educator Katie Parker in Adams County. Hello, Katie. Hey, Chris. How's it going? You know what? I, I can't complain today. It's a it's a nice day. My belly's full of homemade donuts, and it, it's beautiful weather, so I bring it on. How are you doing today? Oh, things are going pretty well. Just staying busy, um, trying to get some yard work done over lunch, which is ni- the nice thing about working from home is kind of get some projects done throughout the day or over our lunch break. I'm kind of in the same boat. We we just drained our little inflatable pool that we had up for part of the summer. And so now I need to get some lawn seed and uh, sow some uh, a new lawn in my little circle that I have in my backyard now. Yeah, this is the time of year to do it. Indeed it is. And it, uh, indeed we are also joined by our other co-host, Ken Johnson in Jacksonville, Illinois. Horticulture educator, by the way, he is... Hello, Ken. Hello, Chris and Katie. So, Ken, what do you have going on in the yard these days? Do you have inflatable pools going down, lawn chores? We have no inflatable pools. We have lawn chores, but I haven't done them. Um, we did clean up. <laughs> <laughs> we did clean up our, our pumpkin patch um, this weekend. Squash bugs kind of decimated everything, so got that cleaned up, and that's all <clears throat> cleaned up and. Decide if we're going to mulch it or maybe put in a cover crop or something, if we can find seed for that. Did it kill all your pumpkins? Yes, we had a couple Aww. pumpkins out there. I counted about 50 squash bugs on them. So, Needless to say, I didn't do a very good job of controlling them this year. I didn't make much of an attempt. So, Yeah, our, we saved one pumpkin, and of course... My kids each had claimed a pumpkin in in our pumpkin patch, and you know only one kid's pumpkin survived. So uh, all the others have deflated like a, a, a busted basketball. So I've got about I think we've got about twenty twenty five or so the, the smaller kind of pie size. So if you need some, I can I can get you some. Well, I'll be down with my truck <laughs> when I buy that too. So speaking of pumpkins, though, so have, have you seen the news? There is a shortage of canned pumpkin in the U.S. these days. Um, and, and we actually have gotten an update from one of our, our field specialists, Elizabeth Wally. Um, she's a commercial ag specialist. And it's kind of a big deal for us uh, in Illinois because a lot of people think of us as corn and soybeans, but we produce, you know, we're one of the biggest producers of pumpkins in the country. We are. I think we're actually the biggest pumpkin producer in the country. Do you guys know why we're the number one producer? So best as I can, this, this is kind of a kind of a guess, kind of a, I, I've, I've been there and toured the fields. Um, but uh, in Mason County, out in that neck of the woods near Peoria, um, their soils are are typically more sandy and there's a lot of there's a lot of different specialty crops that are grown in that area um you know major pumpkin processors are in the peoria morton region as well and 
Yeah, I, I think it has kind of a couple things to do with soils, uh, climate, and uh, the, the processors are there. Yeah, it's something like I think 80% of the pumpkins grown in Illinois aren't what we typically think of as pumpkins, like you're carving pumpkins, but they're actually um, the processing pumpkins, which don't really look like your typical jack-o'-lantern. Um, they're more kind of a watermelon shape. They kind of have a light orange skin uh, to them. And that's what's grown in, in the Peoria, the Morton area. So I did a, a blog post on kind of picking pumpkins a couple years ago and kind of do some research on that. Again, kind of Morton, Illinois, according to their Chamber of Commerce, uh, about 80% of the canned pumpkin in the world is produced in the Libby's plant there. So that's that's kind of that reason why Illinois is kind of the, the pumpkin capital of the country is because of all those processing pumpkins. Oh, wow. That's kind of a big deal then. Yeah. So the, the what our uh, Elizabeth Wally had, had mentioned was that grocery store shelves are totally uh, out of canned pumpkin. And, you know, I think the some articles, news articles circulating are not maybe necessarily inciting a panic, but maybe uh, some hoarding of canned pumpkin. But in terms of the harvest this year in Illinois, it has started. And Elizabeth reported that um, harvest this year is typical. There's not bad, not amazing, just typical. So um, the harvest should be kicking into gear and restocking shelves in time for all of our fall and holiday pumpkin flavored goodies, which I unfortunately am not a fan of. <laughs> I don't like pumpkin pie. It tastes better if you grow the pumpkins yourself. Ah, uh, that's it. You you taste your sweat in that exactly. Pumpkin. Yeah, sweat and tears. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and a couple squash bucks. <laughs> well, folks, today we are going to be talking about nature journaling. You know, last week we we're talking about working with kids and getting them outdoors, and this it, it kind of dovetails a little bit into what we were discussing. I think you're going to dive a little bit more deeper into that that observational side of, uh, of, of being outside in the garden and the landscape and the yard. So I'd like to introduce um, Art. Again, she is the producer of the Good Growing Podcast. Uh, she is also the program coordinator for uh, the horticulture uh, side of things in the unit that I work in. She manages master gardeners and master naturalists and uh, keeps me on track and um, uh, keeps make sure that uh, my hair's also combed and that I'm not uh, totally going off the rails. So, Wendy Ferguson, welcome to the show. Thank you, and I take no responsibility whatsoever for your hair. <laughs> no, you shouldn't. It gets bad some days. <laughs> Folks, I haven't been to the uh, a barber since the 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 uh, whole pandemic thing has started, and so it's getting pretty wild. I haven't either, though, so mine is in the same boat. <laughs> Well, yeah, let's just say I I am trying to do a stand-in for Doc Brown from Back to the Future. That's where I'm going. Well, I, I'm on your way. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So, Wendy, you know, we're we're talking about nature journaling, but I kind of also want to I want to know more about how you got here with us on the podcast. Um, it, you know, what was that motivation behind um you know, researching and, and learning more about nature journaling. So tell us a little bit about your, your career path. Well, I was lucky enough to grow up in the woods uh, in central Illinois, um, outside of Peoria, and I have three younger sisters. So in order to get away from them, 
we all shared a room, all four of us in one room, um, I would take my sketchbook out into the woods and sit underneath a tree and draw what I saw. Um, so that's what started it. Um, I actually went to college out of high school to study plant pathology um, and ran out of money. So when I finally got the chance to go back, I went back um, and finished my undergrad and through an internship decided I was not cut out to be a research scientist. Um, that was not what I was most interested in. What I was most interested in was connecting people with nature. And so I finished up my undergrad in environmental studies and went and pursued a master's um, in environmental studies, writing and communication. And um, during that program, I came to realize that um, the Nature Journal actually bridges both sides of my personality. I call myself an artist and a scientist, and the Nature Journal fits both of those brains. Um, so that's how I got into uh, working with a Nature Journal. You know, these last few weeks and episodes of the podcast, we've talked with Eliana Brown, uh, uh, Brittany Haig, uh, Jamie Balsad, and this theme keeps coming up of uh, scientists and art and uh, observation, expression. I feel like we're tying it all together today, Wendy. We're, we're, we're bringing it all to a head here. So, But it, as I have gone about in, in my own career, um, we have one of our, our master naturalists um, uh, down here in Macomb, uh, Natalie at the Lakeview Nature uh, Center. She first mentioned nature journaling, I think, uh, a few years ago. And then you came on board and you brought those skills, but I'm seeing this more and more. So is this something like, is nature journaling becoming, is it new? I don't think it's new, but is this, is it trending new or I'm just, I'm seeing it kind of everywhere right now. It's actually not new. Um, it is the kind of fad or trend for the, the you know, this time um, in the fact that there are a lot more books and articles being written about it, and that um, I think more because of our, our society and what is happening in it now, but journaling and nature journaling in particular have been around since people had paper, and that um, there have been numerous uh, artists and scientists who have recorded their observations, uh, people like Leonardo da Vinci or um, Albert Einstein, Madame Curie, um, all of these people used a journal as a way to record what they were seeing. And um, the heart of that is being able to write down words and descriptors and to actually sketch what you're seeing um, so that you build a number of different pathways in your brain to remember what it is you observed. So it, the short answer is no, it is not something new. There is a long history of it. Two others that come to mind, Lewis and Clark, very famous for their journals. So you've kind of touched on this already, but, you know, typically, you know, when I think of, and I think a lot of other people, when they think of journaling, um, a lot of times it's, you know, writing down your, your inner thoughts, your, your deepest, darkest secrets type thing. Um, and that's, to some people, I would include myself in this, that's really not all that appealing. Um, but kind of more that data collection kind of information type thing it would be a little bit more. Um, so would that also be considered that nature journaling more of that 
kind of more of that scientific observation type stuff. As a general rule, uh, nature journaling does include um, observation, so data. Um, it's not unusual to find in a, a, a nature journal um, the date, uh, weather conditions, what species you've seen, um, what uh, amount of wind is blowing, those types of observations. Um, but one thing about a nature journal is there is no wrong way to do a nature journal. So if you do want to um, get philosophical um, and contemplate a question that nature inspires, that is perfectly cap you know appropriate way of uh, using your nature journal. But um, so it can be whatever you want it to be ultimately. Um, but generally, there is um, some basic recording of observations conditions that you're seeing at the time. Wendy, what's the best way to get started with journaling? Do you have any tips on best practices to get started? And then also, if it's something uh, that we think that our kids would like to do or something that our kids would enjoy, um, what are some good ways to get them interested and get them started? The best way for, for me to tell you to, how to get started is to um, work with three prompts that I use whenever I'm, I'm teaching a class on nature journaling. And that is, the first one is the prompt, I notice. If you just take any type of, of blank paper and go outside and then just jot down what you're seeing and then look a little closer and what do you see the details and jot that down. So write down what I notice. And then the next prompt is the prompt, I wonder. This is where you get to write out all of your questions and that. So um, you may notice that um, the leaves are starting to turn. And one of your questions could be, I wonder why they're turning. You know, of course, some, you know, you may have an idea of what the answer is, but you might not have a, a total understanding. So what questions are you asking? So that's another way to get started um, in your nature journal. The other prompt that I like to use is it reminds me of. So what are, that you're seeing, what does it remind you of? Is there a way to connect it to something that you already know? The reason we do that is once again, it's another way to build a pathway and a connection within your brain to that information. So between the, it reminds me and connecting it to a memory and drawing and writing, that is building multiple layers of connection within your brain about what you're experiencing. Um, the other things that I would suggest is don't forget to use all of your senses. Um, I will make one caveat. The one sense that I would not necessarily recommend using is your sense of taste. Unless you know specifically what it is you're tasting, that can be a little dangerous in nature. But the other senses, don't rely just on your sight. Close your eyes and, and listen to what is around you. Sometimes you're, it can be pretty amazing what you actually hear. What are you smelling? If it's after a rain, there is a certain sound, uh, smell that the earth gives off after a rain. We all can pit, you know, pull up a memory of that smell. There's an actual word for it, petrichor, 
that describes it. I don't know how well it describes it, but um, so use your senses, feel the bark on a tree, or um, if you know it's not poison ivy, another little caveat, touch the plant. Um, a lot of times you can tell characteristics about the plant by touching it. Um, and also the touching part of it will release odors because you're, you're bruising the, the leaf and that. So don't be afraid to use all of your senses. The three prompts I use are actually ones that I um, appropriated from John Muir's Law, the grandson of John Muir, conservationist, and his program. And they're a great way to get started journaling. And the thing about journaling is you don't have to block off a huge big section of time. We are all busy. One of the things that I do, um, and is my most often time that I, I journal, is after I get off of work, whether I'm working at home or from the office, I grab my journal and that's my transition between my work brain and my home brain. So I will take the journal, set outside, or in the winter, you know, look out the window and take five, ten minutes just to jot down what I'm seeing, what I'm experiencing, if it relates to my day in any way. And that's what I use. That transition helps me to relieve stress. And in fact, journaling has been found to have a number of, of good health uh, benefits from it, um, as does spending time in nature. Um, so that's what I would do to get you started. Just, you know, pick, you know, five minutes while you're drinking your morning cup of coffee or, you know, after work. And that um, in terms of wanting to um, do that with your kids, kids pick up on what you're doing. So if um, the first thing I would suggest is let your kids see you do the nature journal and that if they ask questions, answer what you're doing. Explain to them that, you know, you're you're taking a look and you're noticing what's happening and then ask them an open ended question like, um, what are you seeing or what can you find? Um, kids are, are normally curious and so they'll start pointing out things. Um, that's when you can give them a journal or if they, you know, want to do it as well. A lot of times if they see a grown up doing something, they want to do it too. Um, so that's where um, having the supplies for them to do their own is, is good. Other things would be just to point out nature, even if you don't have your journal. It's a matter of, of getting people used to looking and enjoying and seeing what's out there. Um, I journal with uh, my grandnieces and, and grandnephew and when we first started, uh, Mariah was extremely afraid of bugs, especially spiders. Whenever she saw one, she would scream and, and yell, you know, spider, spider, spider. Well, now she sits down and she talks to earthworms and she's drawing pictures of bugs and stuff like that. She is uh, five years old. So um, you can start very early with your kids exploring nature with them. Um, I knew I had them hooked when one of them came in one day and said, look, 
this is what I saw and I have to draw in my journal and that and then drew a picture of a comma butterfly that she had seen so um, it's a matter of them seeing you do it and asking them questions and and um, being curious with them would be my my best suggestion on how to get them started yeah it seems like it would be pretty natural for kids I know um, one of my nephews he always is asking why 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 is that why is that and so that would be perfect for him exactly so you can write down those he, he can learn to write down those questions you can go and then look up the answers later um, even if you don't um, know the answers that's fine too um, one day Keely the uh, my other grandniece stopped me we were outside um, with our journals and she goes do you hear that and I go what she goes the trees are talking well, the wind was rustling the leaves in the trees, and I go, what are they saying? And she goes, they're having a party. And so within just a few questions, we had this whole make-believe land, but it's a memory both of us will share about being outside with each other that will stay with us and hopefully build a bridge to connection with nature and a more holistic uh, view of the world for lack of a better better term there. Wendy, you're, you're really taking me back to um, uh, back when I was studying landscape architecture. And I remember that um, that first semester, that class uh, was sketching, um, freehand drawing. And they had us take our sketchbook everywhere we went. Everywhere we went, we had to have our sketchbook. And uh, I, I really didn't like that class because they made us show people what we drew, and I am not good at, at sketching. Well, this is what I would say about mm -hmm. sketching in a journal. Sketch, a, a journal sketch is never meant as a finished drawing. Even if you look at Michelangelo's sketchbooks, those were not meant as final products. So one of the things we have to work on is to forget our hang-up that the drawing has to end up looking like what we think it should look like. It's not the necessarily the finished product that is important. It's the act of sketching in the first place. Now, with your landscape architecture, maybe the final product was a little bit more important. But in nature journaling, that's not the case. Oh, you're absolutely right about that. I I reshaped my viewpoint on that. I said, this is for me. This is not for other people. And even now, I, I, I've kind of gotten out, out of the habit of sketching, but um, I go back to my sketchbooks and I'll look at them and they're precious to me. Kind of like, exactly. yeah, mm -hmm. like that moment you have with your grandniece. It's just like there are moments and I go back in time when I see these, these uh, sketches or even like text and notes that I wrote to myself, I really, I, I, yeah, it's, it's really neat to do. Exactly. And that, that's the whole point of them. The, the nature journal is not meant for, you know, other people, though, of course you can share, but it, it's more of a, a way to explore on your own. And that, um, I've learned stuff about myself through the nature journaling um, to get a little bit more philosophical. And um, I've also um, made some really cool observations on animal behavior that I would never have 
noticed had I not been out there with my nature journal. So it's an opportunity to slow down and actually notice what's happening around us. You know, we're bombarded with uh, sensations and information and our brain is really good at sifting through and, and shutting out the clutter. But a lot of that stuff that we miss is actually meaningful. And so a nature journal makes us stop and refocus. And I think that is a tool that all of us can use in this hectic information age that we live in. Exactly. And that's why they had us do it. It forced us to slow down and pay attention to the details so that when we turned in that beautiful landscape plan, we were then able to then take that and then go do construction details of how to build that actual project because we have been paying attention to the, to the small things of the world. Yeah, exactly right. Um, scientists and artists aren't that much different in the fact that both of them, both mindsets, take a look at the observation part of it. They're trying to learn and understand more about what they are, are experiencing. And that is an underlying principle for either mindset, whether you're you're looking to understand how the light um, falls on an object so you can shade it properly as an artist, um, to a scientist wanting to know um, how great a change um, there is in different growing treatments and stuff. Each of those observation skills are still underlying the same uh, principles. The purpose is just a little bit different. But And we've even been seeing a shift in how uh, kids at school are being taught science. And um, they're using the uh, some states, not all states, some states are using the next generation science standard. Um, and so how, how would like nature journaling play a role with this? Nature journaling folds right into the, the new standards. Basically, the new standards um, break science down into three interact, you know, interconnected parts. Your um, core ideas, which are still the facts and um, theories that science teaches us, you know, in the different disciplines of, you know, um, earth science or astronomy and that. Um, but it also goes into the actual practicing of what scientists do to investigate, um, what engineers do to design and build systems. So it's more of engaging them in the practices that build and deepen that knowledge of the core ideas. Um, and then the other thing is um, this idea of cross-cutting concepts, which means what are the connections between those different domains of science, like the physical science or the earth science or the engineering design. How do all of these things connect together? And nature journaling is a place where you can explore those connections and practice skills that scientists then use. And so a nature journal is um, a very easy way to um, practice all three of those major uh, standards um, in a very inexpensive, easy way. Oh, folks, that was a fantastic discussion about uh, nature journaling. Uh, thank you very much, Wendy, for, for you know, 
you know, being here, telling us uh, more about that. I feel like we could talk about this all day, but this is also a, uh, a, a question show, folks. And so we, we do have questions that have been coming in uh, for uh, for us, the hosts, to to go through. And so, Wendy, would you mind uh, reading the questions for us for the second half of the show? My pleasure. It's fun to be able to ask you guys some questions this time. Okay, we have from Warren County. Um, we have a person who's interested in starting a pollinator garden. They have a 60 by 20 foot area to work with and would like suggestions on how to get started. So I can take the first stab at this. Um, I think right now kind of the biggest thing would be um, getting rid of any weeds or any other kind of vegetation. If this is turf or something like that, um, killing off that turf, um, getting rid of any weeds that are there. Um, so you kind of have a nice <clears throat> kind of clean so to speak, soil that you're planting into. Um, if, if you want to plant this year, um, probably want to get your seeds and stuff ordered. Um, a lot of that stuff, it's probably going to be best to plant that in the fall. Um, a lot of our native plant species need some kind of um, stratification um, in order to, to germinate. So, for example, milkweed needs to have cold, moist conditions in order to germinate. Um, so a lot of times this can be planted in the fall so they can get that during the winter. Um, if you are planting plugs or transplants, something like that, again, you want to get those planted relatively quickly, well, within the by this fall, so that those plants can get established for winter. Um, I know typically I will. Last few years, I've bought some native grass plugs um, that I've planted. They've come, you know, the top growth is dead, um, but those roots are still growing. So you know, plant those in the fall. Those roots get established a little bit um, before those plants kind of go fully dormant when it gets real cold out. Um, as far as killing off, you know, turf or wherever you're going to be putting this, you could use herbicides, something like glyphosate that's going to kill everything off. Um, you could try, uh, if you want to do something like mulching, mulching <clears throat> deeply, um, that would probably be better if you're going to be planting transplants. If you want to do seed and you're mulching, that's probably going to be a couple year process so that mulch can break down. Um, and then you can seed into that um, after the fact. You could do something, you could try smothering um, the turf or stuff like that, put a tarp out, uh, something like that, let that kill all the grass off uh, and stuff as well. I'll just add, too, that uh, I'll include a link to this in the notes below that uh, the Indiana, Illinois Sea Grant, they do have a really nice brochure of some of some, some just suggestions of, of plant material that you can use also. Uh, for a, a full sun pollinator garden. So I will include that in the, the notes below. Okay, our next question comes from Facebook. This person has quite a few trees that they want to limb up that are in the transition area from their house yard to their 80 acres of farm timber. Should they wait until late October to prune? Yeah, so when pruning trees or trimming trees, it's typically suggested to wait till late winter um, so kind of that February March time frame and just before spring growth starts so when we prune that way um, that wound that we've created can um, be covered sooner as we'll be approaching spring soon and then that new growth will seal up the wound um, another advantage of pruning during the dormant period is we don't have any leaves on our trees and so it's easy to prune and shape up the tree. You can easily see your main leader and 
uh, prune the tree based off of that as well. There are some pruning techniques or different pruning times for different uh, types of trees. So one issue that we see is oak wilt, which can occur from pruning trees from April to October. Uh, what happens is the oaks are wounded um, and it makes them more susceptible to getting this disease. We also want to avoid stem cankers. So it's best to prune honey locust when they're dormant in late winter. So again, we want to shoot for that February to March timeframe. Um, if you're pruning apple trees, flowering crab apples, and other like mountain ash, it's best to prune those in the February to early April timeframe as well. Um, but yeah, typically we'll want to prune our trees when they're dormant. The only case where you would want to trim them right away is if you have had damage to the trees, so any storm damage or limbs blown out uh, and you do just want to cut them back to the, the crown of the tree. Okay, thanks. And for our final question, um, it comes from McDonough County. They say, our fall raspberries are being eaten by yellow jackets. What can we do to save them? It seems the tips of the berries ripen before the rest of the fruit, and that's where they start. Since we're harvesting now, we need something to spray and then be able to pick. Well, in the case of uh, this situation, it's, it's, there's unfortunately not much or, you know, I can't really find anything that would really work uh, because uh, in speaking with this, this here homeowner, they're harvesting it daily uh, as the, the berries are, are ripening. And they, they were describing the yellow jackets as kind of hollowing them out, creating a little a little donut shape with an empty hole in the center because they start at the tip and they work their way back up the berry. Um, so looking at and, and talking also with, uh, with Ken uh, and uh, looking online, really the best options at this point in the season is a physical exclusion, uh, like some type of mist netting, row cover, uh, and uh, in conjunction with some type of a yellow jacket trap, which they're at, at this time of year, a lot of the, the home garden centers have yellow jacket traps because they tend to become more uh, evident this time of year. Uh, sometimes they do become a little bit more aggressive as it's cooling off and, and food sources are, are becoming limited. And uh, essentially their colony is uh, uh, preparing, the, the queen will have left and kind of leaves them on their own. Um, so I, I'd say those are the best options. Physical exclusion, placing yellow jacket traps in the periphery to kind of draw them away from uh, these brambles. Uh, yeah, there's not too much the spray that has a post-harvest interval of you know zero, which also is labeled for use on brambles and against yellow jackets or hornets. So uh, yeah, in this case, that's I think probably the best option for the the situation. Another helpful thing would be to, if they have any raspberries that have fallen on the ground, um, getting those cleaned up so those aren't attracting, especially those kind of overripe ones that are, they're kind of almost fermenting a little bit. That's going to be real attractive to them too. So getting those out of there or any kind of sugary substance, whether they're bringing out drinks or something while they're harvesting, you know, soda, 
energy drinks, something like that. Kind of keep those sugary things out of the area too so that's not attracting them in as well. And then I have a final question for all of you. Um, what are you doing right now um, prepping in terms of prepping your landscape beds for winter or next spring? What are your fall gardening to-do lists? I'd say in my yard, what I, and as Ken mentioned earlier, is not getting the lawn work done. I'm also a little bit behind on the outside chores. Um, what I want to do, and I hope to do, for our landscape beds is, because um, it's, again, a new house, really establishing those beds, uh, applying a, a deep mulch, uh, six inches or greater of uh, arborist wood chips. You know, we usually get those for free. We can actually drive over to our, our local yard waste facility here in Macomb and just load up our truck and, and, and get those and do a deep mulching because I hope over time that deep mulch will settle, uh, decompose, and then next year uh, and, and then in further years, we can begin planting out these landscape beds. And I'm, I'm kind of planning these beds to shape my yard space uh, to kind of create more geometric form to my lawn area and also to create beds that then create pathways of the lawn that can then lead and guide people or users, me, <laughs> in our yard from front yard to side yard to backyard. Uh, so that's really our major yard task, I think, for this fall. And raking leaves, which have already started to fall, strangely, with kind of our droughty weather. And then combine that with uh, we have emerald ash borer and some of the ash trees in the woods behind us. So I'll say for our, for our kind of our ornamental beds, um, we're kind of like Chris, we're hoping to get some mulch. Um, and we've kind of got our beds, for the most part, established, so ours are just kind of adding a little bit more mulch um, to a lot of them or um, mulching some that we haven't mulched yet. Um, for ornamentals, I don't usually do much to them unless there's been a lot of disease problems. I just let all that stand um, during the winter, kind of add that seasonal interest and um, some of the stuff <clears throat> like purple cone flower and stuff, those seed heads, um, birds will feed on those. Um, vegetable garden, um, cleaned up our pumpkins this this weekend so you know kind of getting some of those things that are done producing getting those cleaned up and out of there um, trying to get rid of as much of that plant debris as possible so we're not um, providing areas for diseases or insects to overwinter in um, typically after we have our, our kind of a frost I'll go in and clean up all the tomatoes and and everything and and then probably last year we put um, some cover crop seed down. Um, this year, our mulch is still um, still lasting pretty good, so it probably won't do cover crops. May just put a little more um, shredded leaves down um, as a mulch for our garden or vegetable garden beds. So I've started seeing some um, some probably well not really winter annual weeds yet, but um, some cooler season weeds popping up, and so I've been trying to control those uh, and prevent any weed seeds being developed and having issues in the future. Um, some other things I've been working on as I soil sampled our lawn and our pH is a little low. So I hope to apply maybe some lime to our uh, yard this, this um, fall yet and hopefully get that pH up a little bit. We aerated and overseeded our yard. Um, and so we're starting to see some 
little seedlings pop up, so that's exciting to watch. Um, like the other two said, I've been leaving those dead flower heads on just for birds to feed on or play in uh, throughout the winter months. We did have some miscanthus grass that I think our previous homeowner had used as some like privacy. Um, and so I um, staked those seed heads up because they were just fallen over. And so that's something nice too for the birds throughout the winter. And Wendy, kind of right back at you, I'm curious. So we're talking about nature journaling today. A lot of this is, you know, going outside, observing nature. And what about in the winter? What what do you do in the winter? What should What's a good strategy for kind of keeping this habit going even when we're inside? That's a good question because I, in particular, don't like the cold weather very much. Um, I have in the past gone out with my nature journal in the, the heart of winter, but I did not find it um, appealing to stand out there and, and get bitterly cold because it's very hard to write or draw um, with mittens on your hands, so you have to take those off to, to write. Um, so what I have found works really well for me in the winter is to find a good window where you can look out and observe and curl up with your journal, maybe a cup of uh, hot beverage, whatever your choice may be, and journal that way. The other thing that I do in the winter is it's a good time to practice your sketching skills. So um, in um, the Renaissance, apprentice to the masters would practice their drawing by copying the master's sketches and drawings. And so now would be, a, you know, the winter is a really good time to practice copying somebody else's drawings. Uh, Claire Walker Leslie is a really good, um, has some really good books about nature journaling. And she has some really lovely drawings in there that would be great to copy. And in fact, she also recommends copying other people's drawings. That's how I learned how to draw was I, I practice drawing the sketches of da Vinci and Michelangelo and that that's how my dad taught me how to draw so use those um, ideas to um, practice the other thing is another thing that's really helpful is use your guidebooks practice drawing from your guidebooks that way your animal isn't running and jumping and flying away um, they'll sit there because it's a photograph so practice from photographs. That's another way. So um, that by the time springtime comes around, you'll be an old hat at sketching and it will be second nature to you to um, pick up that uh, pen or pencil and actually sketch in your, your journal. So that's what I would suggest for the winter. Oh, those are fantastic tips. So Wendy, the producer of the Good Growing Podcast and the horticulture program coordinator U of I Extension here in West Central Illinois. Thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your expertise with us today. It was my pleasure. It was fun to be on this side of the mic this time. <laughs> well, get used to it. You're coming back again and again. The Good Going Podcast is produced by Wendy Ferguson and it is edited by me, Chris Enroth. Thank you very much to our returning co-hosts week after week. 
Katie Parker and Ken Johnson. It's always great to be here. Thank you, Chris. Katie, Wendy, we'll do it again next week. And yes, we shall do it again next week, folks. We will be talking with Richard Henschel about gardening tools and taking care of them, especially after all the abuse we put them through this year. Folks, thank you for doing what you do best, and that is listening. And as always, keep on growing. I keep thinking we should have a clapboard that, you know, and that's a wrap. (laughs) (laughs) Every time you say that. (laughs) 